Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod. My name is Conor McCormick. I'm a lecturer in the School of Law, but I'm also a final stage PhD student. Um, so my PhD research is all about the constitutional position of law officers in the UK. And today I'm joined by two of my contemporaries in the School of Law um, who are going to introduce themselves and tell us what their own projects are about. My name is Sarah Craig. I'm a final year PhD student also. And uh, my research is focusing on EU asylum law, specifically solidarity within the common European asylum system. And I am Rasha Conley. Um, I'm a final year PhD student and my research is on patent law, human dignity and their right to health, quite broadly. Thanks guys. So we're here today um, to discuss the PhD journey as we near the end of it. Um, and the, the title to the podcast is what I wish I had known as a first year PhD student. So I thought it would be useful to begin with a disclaimer, um, just to say from the outset that um, what we have to say is all individual and it's not going to be particularly profound, um, but we hope it's kind of useful and practical to people who are A, considering doing a PhD, or B, at the very start of the process. So uh, to begin, um, we thought we would work our conversation around a series of headings or phases that we um, have identified in the process and those are to read often, to think often, to write often, to meet often and to speak often. Reading and thinking are those first two headings and we had a discussion before we came here today just about how those are two often overlooked aspects to the process. So there's a, a, a sense of urgency to write um, or a sense of uh, keenness to attend training courses and so on. And the more you kind of agree to do those, kind, those kinds of things, the less time you have to actually sit and go through the literature you have to and think about it, most importantly. So I think the, the most important thing I wanted to say about that was the importance of sifting through the relevant literature. Uh, my own supervisor has this lovely phrase of saying it's so important to nest yourself in the literature relevant to your area and it's so true until you have a really firm grasp on what has already been written on your subject um, it's probably a bad idea to start trying to generate ideas um, which are supposed to be original. Um, I think an important aspect that I have found is to keep on top of the kind of abundance of reading um, that you have to do in, in terms of your PhD um, I find that setting up email alerts for new cases coming out. So my research is obviously with um, within the EU for asylum claims, and there seems to be a new case coming out um, every every day or every week at least. Um, so I find that email alerts have, have really helped me so that I don't miss an important case. And I know we've talked about previously as well that setting up some kind of a, an alert mechanism for... Um, for new journal articles as well is an important tool 
I think, for starting off, especially within your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, just moving on from that or jumping off from that, I would say um, make sure you don't get lost in the internet um, because there there really is an abundance of, of literature out there and um, it, you can really get... F- you know, lost down the rabbit hole of of literature that sometimes isn't particularly re- relevant to your research. So you really have to be strategic in what you're reading and just make sure that, you know, you don't waste time reading stuff and making notes in it and thinking and writing about it um, whenever it's really not relevant. So just stay concise. Yeah, one of the things we said before was it's it's important to know when to abandon mm-hmm. a piece of literature, whether or not um, it might seem from the title of the abstract hugely relevant to your area. If you find yourself going through it, it's important to be able to say, do you know something that I'm just not relating to this and I don't mm-hmm. think it's it's going to be useful for my research, but as long as you can rationalise and justify your decision to kind of discount it, mm-hmm. um, it's important to be able to do that because otherwise... Um, if you're too completionist, um, you'll just never get through all the stuff that's out there. And yeah. you mentioned journal alerts, Sarah. And one of the services I've always found really useful is ZTOC, so Z-E-T-O-C, um, which is essentially an alert system whereby they have a kind of central list of all the journals that, not all the journals, most of the journals mm-hmm. that are out there in the academic world. And you kind of sort of tick the ones you want to receive alerts about. And you can refine that into an intelligence search so that you're only notified if, for example, you're me, you want to hear about journal articles with Attorney General, Solicitor General, whatever, in the title or in the the text, then you can be smart about that and make sure you know about the latest scholarship that comes out that's relevant to you. Uh, There's similar functions in Westlaw, but it'll depend on kind of the access rights of your institution on whether or not you get access to them, I suppose. So yeah, that's that's reading and thinking. I don't know, I've heard some people say that sometimes they literally put a blog in their diary to, to spend time reflecting on the literature they've read. And once you've done that, I suppose it brings us on to the next stage we were going to talk about, which is writing. Um, hugely important. Nearly everybody I ever speak to about what they wish they had known when they started says, I wish I had written some level of words each and every day from the start because it's never wasted you know every all the all the text that you do is always going to go through many iterations but the sooner you start firing it down in whatever shape or form the better but um my approach in terms of drafting uh chapters and so on of my thesis has always been to get it to a relatively polished stage before i pass it on to my supervisors i read a a tweet online last week by Matthew Ryder, who's a QC at Matrix, and he was giving advice to young advocates, and he said, you know, a first draft is not a rough draft. Whenever you're a trainee, which sort of resonated with me because I'm very aware that from day one of the PhD process, you're trying to demonstrate the qualities of a kind of professional academic researcher that's capable of carrying out their own project. So although your supervisors are there to kind of give you guidance and steer you in the right direction and bounce ideas off, I think it's it's important to always balance that openness against um, the need to send through text, which is at a kind of professional standard uh, mm-hmm. right from the start. So it's kind of letting go of that semi-consumerist student mindset and assuming the role of an academic as early on as you can, I think. 
Yep, what I, would do you agree. Think? I would agree. I think um, linking into that also would be the idea possibly of, of time management, um, setting aside certain blocks of your time for, like you say, reading, for maybe writing, um, and being productive in the time that you do set aside. Um, I think everyone goes through phases where the writing can be a real struggle. Um, just your own personal uh, difficulties, um, just thinking that is this going to be at a level where um, your supervisor thinks it's it's good enough, where, where you are happy with your own research. Um, so it is, it's about setting aside time and also maybe having weekly goals to, to possibly by the end of the week I would like to have such and such um, put down on, on paper mm-hmm. and um, it kind of makes sure that your PhD can become a bit more you can set aside ma- or manage your, your chunks of time better um, so yes that's yeah I, I would agree with with all of those points as well um, but uh, as well as that, I would say um, that different, you know, supervisors will say different things about how polished they expect your work to be. Um, so really have a conversation about that, especially as you're going through your PhD. You know, you might get lost in the literature, but you might actually find something that's really interesting there that might um, you might not have thought about before, and then you want to write about it. Um, but you also have a deadline to make as well so instead of completely developing a point um, and trying to include it within this huge body of work that you're trying to get done for a certain amount of time or for a certain deadline um, I would say you know advice has been given to me before you know maybe make a note of it um, add a comment beside it or some bullet points send it off to your supervisor within the body of work um, and get their feedback on it maybe before you develop that point and it also allows you to to not be so perfectionist in in how you're delivering your work as well because that can really stall your progress at times because it um you know your, your confidence as as you write um can go through peaks and troughs I've found um, you know you definitely get a bit of imposter syndrome as the deadlines come on sometimes um, so I think be aware of that and one thing that I read quite early in my PhD um, was that you know the the quote about the directors the best directors leave um, plenty of their film on the cutting room floor so be aware of that as well not everything will go into your PhD so don't be too precious about what you write and what you've read about and what you've thought about because you can develop that later on after your PhD as well you know it's 80,000 words you know aim for the end goal of finishing the PhD and maybe think about other things afterwards yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you both brought up time management because it's one of those things that we all struggle with to a degree. And since I've started my lectureship, I've been asking all the the full-time staff what their sort of working routines are because I'm really interested in how different everybody approaches it. Mm-hmm. You know, some people um, love a nine-to-five mm-hmm. um, and they do their best to dolly pardon their routines. Mm-hmm. Whereas others, um, for whatever reason, they might have care and responsibilities, they might live far away, um, they start at a different time of day and finish at a different time of day. It's important to know that that's completely fine. You know, part mm. of the joy and the privilege of being in an academic role is that you, you, you're able to take advantage of those flexibilities. So be sure that you're aware of it and do that and don't feel 
tied to kind of a neoliberal <laughs> um, structure to your life. You know, you're, you're able to let that go and work in a way that's most efficient for you. And in terms of efficiencies, I think whenever I'm writing, one of the most important things that I would like to have known early on or to have adopted early on, at least, was um, the importance of good bibliographic referencing software. <laughs> um, so we all know this is a, a bit of a, a demon to kind of get to grips with it initially, but the advantages far away the hassle of getting initiated. So for me, I, I've got really into the way of using Zotero as my chosen platform and I find it really good because, you know, it's completely free. It's not tied to the institution so that if I move institutions at any stage, I can take my my database of references with me. And just to explain for people who are starting, I suppose what it does is it stores and kind of folders lists of all the references for your 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 materials that you're reading, your literature and so on, that you're going to reference within your thesis. And you can organise those into folders, you can tag them by groups, and it just saves you so much work whenever you're drafting, because you can insert, just to be doing a quick search within your, your chosen software, Zotero for me, and insert the references and then update all your cross-references and so on mm-hmm. efficiently, meaning that you don't have to waste a lot of time on that kind of tiresome stuff yes. um, it's been a complete lifesaver for me actually as well I used to input all of my references just by hand every time or uh, sorry on the computer um, but Connor has got me on to Zotero as well and it has really been um, a complete time saver for me in, mm-hmm. in terms of my research yeah, well, I have a bit of a horror story in that regard because I used the cross-referencing system on Word um, and unfortunately then whenever I redrafted I lost a lot of my citations. So on the back of that now um, I, I write in a style that wouldn't necessarily be Oscola compliant because I repeat my citations plainly because I don't want to lose all of my citations again with um, IBID maybe in the wrong place or a cross-reference that doesn't actually go anywhere anymore. So if you're not using software, just be really careful about the fact that you could lose your citations in a redraft and you might be pinpointing to the wrong source and that's just so time-consuming at the end. Yeah, I mean, the software's never going to be a panacea whichever you use but I think it's important to have these discussions and see because and I tried a few different platforms and it's taken a while for me at least to to figure out which one actually works well I mean your your word story is a, a good example but I initially used RefWorks as well and for whatever reason it just it just wasn't right for me so mm-hmm. yes yeah, so it's just one of those really good tools for managing your time more efficiently you don't want to waste time that could be spent reading and thinking uh, on awful things like uh, rejigging cross-references. <laughs> so yeah, um, and if you can do that, if you can manage your time well, um, I love this quote that I heard this morning, um, which was that your deadlines need not become dreadlines, <laughs> which I think is a good thing to move on with. So writing is obviously super important, um, but then the other, the other phase in the process that we were going to discuss was meeting often. So it's pretty well known that it is possible for a PhD to become a very lonely process if you lock yourself away in an ivory tower and read your books and think about them and write them and do nothing else. 
but that's of course not uh, not the way of things now. Um, so I wanted to highlight a couple of experiences I have that really, really helped me kind of have a more sociable PhD experience. And the first was by joining a kind of loose association of other researchers within your school in the first instance. So for me, I got actively involved in the Human Rights Centre in the School of Law at Queen's and through that, all sorts of doors were opened and opportunities given to me. It really improved the kind of student-staff relationship um, building that I experienced. And that's one way of meeting up with people because it means you have a regular slot in your diary normally each month where you're coming together and talking about events that are being organised, given opportunities to organise your own events. Um, and I suppose it's, it's one level because then on top of forming an, or joining an association within your school, you can of course join larger academic associations, which most of them have sort of PhD student uh, level membership fees. So the SLSA, the SLS and so on. And that's another really good tip to do from the start because the sooner you get involved, the sooner you, you're subscribed to their mailing lists and hear about all the great opportunities that they provide for PhD students as well. Um, and then the other thing that I was going to highlight in terms of meeting up with people as often as you can was um, engaging with sort of representative roles in your school. So I volunteered to do sort of representative stuff on behalf of my year of the PhD cohort at various committees within the school. And while at first blush that could sound very boring and kind of like, why would you, um, other than a sense of innate um, charity, Actually, it was a really great way of staying in touch, A, with the people on the PhD course, because if they had a problem, they would come and we'd go for a chat, and obviously that spirals off into chat about research and normal life as well. But not only that, it gave me an opportunity to gain confidence in front of university committees, which, for anybody who's interested in pursuing an academic career trajectory, is a necessary part of the job. So. I really value, on reflection, all those chances to sit in rooms with very senior academic um, staff and university managerial staff and to kind of navigate those environments because they can be quite difficult for somebody at an early stage in their career to speak up in. You know, I'm always mindful of Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in advice and it's always served me well whenever I'm sitting with a lump in my throat and a bundle of nerves in my chest wondering will I make this point now or will I wait and send a follow-up email or whatever but actually it's so important to put yourself in those positions and and start building that confidence up as early as you can so little roles like that which are you know recognized for students are are certainly something I would recommend as well. Yeah I think the meet off uh, meet often aspect is a really important um, part of the, the PhD process. I think you need to remember the, the support network around you, not only from your PhD supervisors, but also your PhDs, uh, fellow PhD students. Um, coming from an undergraduate and um, a taught master's programme, it can be quite isolating and it can also be a lonely experience, I think, a PhD going to go through. Um, and I think just generally meeting up with your PhD colleagues 
um, talking through your own research. So even if they're doing a completely distinct area of law from you, it's great to get their, their feedback um, and just to, just to have someone to talk through your research with, if it's especially if it's at a very early uh, stage um, in writing. And linking into that, I think, would also be that although you're possibly in a shared workspace or a shared environment with people um, and with your fellow PhD students, um, you will be doing your own research, but I think it is also important to remember to know that everyone is working to a different time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is very easy to compare yourself to other PhD students like they're at a different stage they're working faster than me I should be at that level um, and it, it is quite hard so I think having PhD students around you where you can just chat to on an, an informal basis I think it is so important mm-hmm. um, and I would also second this um what Connor has said about getting involved with events, the Human Rights Centre. I think all three of us have um, really benefited from working with staff and students and and being able to organise events. Um, Each of us have co-organised conferences as well and it's a great environment to be part of. Um, I know that there's different, obviously, organisations to be a part of, but we have really benefited from the Human Rights Centre especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that we can emphasise enough how important it was for all of us to be involved with the Human Rights Centre from the beginning, um, because as well as the opportunities that it gives you to to organise things, and you know, I was in, involved in a, a working research paper and at the very beginning, and I did a, an edited collection of the dissertations and different things like that. But apart from the kind of CV building things that it can help you with. I think the collegial aspect of it is really important because we now have friends that we've made through the Human Rights Centre that are our staff now, you know, we've been friends for years and their ability to help you through the tough patches in your PhD is, um, is just really priceless because they have been through the process before and you can then chat to them informally um, about the different ways that you can manage things that maybe go on throughout your PhD and I think that's one of the things that we spoke about um, this morning in in our talk was um, you know the importance of getting support from people around you Um, you know if you're working from home you know which a lot of us do quite often you can turn into a bit of a hermit you know Um, and it, it can be quite detrimental to your mental health if you're not then able to meet up with other people who are going through the same thing and your friends and family might be able to try and help you and support you through kind of hard times but unless you're you're actually doing a PhD or have done one it's kind of hard to understand exactly what you know it is where you maybe haven't seen anybody all day and then everybody comes home from work and you know you've just been sitting alone with your books all day you know it's a it's a bit mad you know <laughs> um so I think the the main thing about meeting up is, you know, meeting often is it really helps your mental health through a, a very isolating process. Um, so then the last the last thing we said we would talk about is speaking often. Um, I suppose the thing that came to my mind most 
under that heading was how long I actually left it before I felt comfortable speaking about my PhD research. So I was kind of in an unusual position in that I had worked in a research role the year before I began my PhD, but it was obviously on questions unrelated to the PhD topic itself. So um, I had a paper almost ready to present whenever I was starting out as a PhD student, which is unusual. Um, every every PhD experience is individual. Um, and I presented that at a, at a local conference being held at Queen's. It was about children's proceedings, nothing at all to do with uh, attorneys general. But it was a valuable experience. Uh, however, on reflection, I find myself wondering... Um, did I sort of say to myself, I've got a conference in the bag, I can leave speaking about my research a bit longer now that I have that sort of ticked off the list, as it were, which is a pretty bad attitude, I think, on reflection. Actually, I would rather have spoken about the PhD research in a kind of informal, at least PhD seminar type environment much sooner. So if I think if I was starting again, I would be much more keen to either arrange those sorts of events or at least participate in something where it allows you to speak about your ideas at a more formative stage because to link back to some of the other headings um, I, I I find myself I think as I write and you know I tend to fire most of my thoughts down in a pretty messy shape onto a page and then reject them um, over time, that's kind of my drafting technique and everybody's different, but had I come to a seminar or a conference a bit sooner to talk about the overall thesis, thesis idea, I think the process of putting it into words for an audience, however big or small, junior or senior, um, would have been really helpful. Um, so I know both of you have probably a bit more conference experience than I do. So do you want to maybe reflect yeah. on your own experience? I think the speak often bit is um, one of the ones that I struggle with the most. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an overly confident public speaker. Even being asked to do this podcast today, I think, really scared me. Um, but I, I do think that obviously it's about practice. It's um, about just gaining confidence um, in, your, in yourself, in your own work. Um, and obviously, I think that comes with doing it often. Um, what I would say would, um, would be that the most experience that I've um, received has been from speaking at um, conferences which are not necessarily organised by, but um, that a lot of the speakers are postgraduate or PhD speakers, because everyone's in the same position, everyone probably has the same nerves um, about speaking um, in public, about putting your research out there. And I think that they can be quite a supportive and safe environment to um, have the output um, of your research. Um, I've been to a few postgraduate uh, conferences, um, one of which recently was the, the Human Rights Centre conference, which organised, uh, the last one was on, on refugee law and it's it's great to have a conference which is within your very niche little area with 
fellow PhD students which are interested in your area where you can make a lot of network um, connections. Um, so I think I've, on a personal note, I've found that the postgraduate conferences have really helped me um, just develop the confidence to, to speak um, about your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is really important to get in there early because, um, you know, you're always going to be a little bit afraid of, of doing it. So it's a case of feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, and you might be told by some people that you're, you know, not ready or that you don't have enough to say or you might be telling yourself that. But um, you always have something to say and a postgraduate environment is possibly the best place that you can say that. And the feedback that you get um, is invaluable. So just go for it, I would say. Speak as often as you can. So I think that brings us almost to a close. You know, we've covered quite a lot in terms of what it takes to survive at least to this stage of a PhD Um, and it should be borne in mind I suppose that all that has to be managed alongside the other uh, requirements of whichever career trajectory you're interested in pursuing so um, there's always an important need to reflect on achieving all those things while also having a life Um, so we're lucky enough to have been good friends as well as um, supportive colleagues and I think that's maybe a nice note to end on you know don't forget to go out and enjoy life and don't let it consume you mm-hmm. yeah I would agree yeah. I think um, the only way to, to finish a PhD is maybe to look after your mental health and I think that that's something that's driven home within the School of Law and in the wider university is that you know these are all very important things to do but the most important thing is your mental health, so look after that, especially. I think that's poignant for PhD students. I have not yet been to the meditation sessions, <laughs> which are run, but let's make that our next kind of... Next our meeting. Next outing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks very much, Sarah and Rasha, for joining me, and thank you for listening to this podcast. You have been listening to Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and we are funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUB Law Pod. And for more information, you can also visit our website, www.lawpod.org. Please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was Law Pod.